Welcome to the Restoration Church Podcast. To learn more about our church, give, share a prayer request, or access our weekly worship guide, visit us at www.restorationlex.com slash this week. Well, it's this first Sunday, 2023. I'm really glad you are here this morning. Um, and it's a new year, new year, and you might come to church expecting to have one of those uh, messages about, like, here's three steps to have a really successful year, or five steps to get your year jump-started, or some corny thing like that that you have heard before. I'm fresh out. I don't have any of those today. I hope that's okay with you. I don't have any of the motivational speeches for you here as we start this year, but what I do have today is a simple truth that I want to press in on together. It's something I hope that we can internalize and live from, words that I think can change us more than any resolution, any inspiration that I could ever speak today. And there's this simple truth that we want to press into today, and that is that you and I, we are loved. You are loved. Where you are, as you are, you are eternally and stubbornly loved by God. And this love is not dependent on your performance. It's a God who does not ebb and flow with the seasons. He is a God whose love is called steadfast, is called immovable. It says in the scriptures that his love endures forever. And maybe you have trouble processing that. I know I do sometimes. Perhaps it remains mostly an idea to you in your head and not really a reality in your heart. Some people have asked me before, Justin, have you experienced seasons of doubt about your faith? And for me, I'm not really a a person who's experienced a lot of doubt in terms of doctrinal or theological issues. When I've experienced doubt, it's always been around the love of God. Like, how could God love me? If that's you, maybe you can can identify with that. There's good news for us today. We're going to jump into our passage here today. It's in Matthew chapter 3 on this first Sunday of Epiphany, where for the majority of the, 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 the chapter, we're hearing about John the Baptist, who's this wild prophetic man who's preaching in the wilderness. It says he's wearing clothes that are made out of camel's hair, and there are he's eating locusts and honey. Now, when you hear that, that sounds kind of wild until you look up, and you can get like Camel's hair, hair coats on H&M and stuff like that. Camel's hair is nice nowadays. But back then, you're going out and you're finding this camel's hair. You're eating locusts. This is a wild, wild man who's preaching this gospel of repentance, calling people to it. People are leaving the cities and entering into the wilderness to hear this man preach. He's Jesus' cousin. He's declaring repentance. He's calling people out of their old life and into something new. He tells the crowd right before our passage today, he says, I baptize you with water for repentance, but after me, comes one who is more powerful than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. What John knows is that John is laying the groundwork for the Messiah. This camel's hair clothing, this is hearkening back to the Old Testament to Elijah as one who is a prophet to come. And he knows that his cousin Jesus, this at this point, who is just a carpenter, who 
has not yet begun his ministry, who at this point is almost entirely unknown. But he knows, he knows that as he looks to Jesus, this is the one who is to come. But yet, at this point, Jesus is not known. Keep that in mind today as we move forward. Now, moving down to verse 13 in Matthew 3, it says, Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to be baptized by John. But John tried to deter him, saying, I need to be baptized by you. And do you come to me? And Jesus replied, let it be so now. It is proper for us to do this to fulfill all righteousness. And so then John consented. I mean, John has the same question I bet you have today. Why in the world would Jesus get baptized? Have you ever thought about that? Why would Jesus enter into this public declaration of faith and allegiance? It's this proclamation, baptism, of leaving behind the old life and moving into the new. It's a public display of repentance. And so as we think back to this, why would Jesus, the sinless Son of God, enter into this act of baptism. I think we can find the answer in looking back on the very first page of the Bible. If you remember, God speaks the world into existence, and on the seventh day, what does he do? He rests. Now, in this moment, does God need to rest? Is he resting out of need, or is he resting out of entering into a pattern that recreates the, the formation of creation itself? God rests, and then in that, sets forth this pattern of life for all of creation. He did not rest out of need. God rested as an example. I think this is the same thing that's happening in Jesus' baptism. He doesn't need to repent of sin. He is without sin, but instead, Jesus is embodying and exemplifying the kind of life that he's calling us to first. I love it here in the message translation of this verse. It says, Jesus is responding to John. He says, do it. God's work, putting things right all these centuries, is coming together right now in this baptism. Just like in Genesis 1, what we're seeing is that Jesus is imprinting onto creation a pattern of life. This is what recreation looks like into the waters of death and being risen up to new life. This is before all things how his work is done. Even in baptism, Jesus did not need repentance, but he goes before us as an example to imprint this pattern of life. It's why we believe so passionately in baptism, why we baptize people, because Jesus went before us. He's leading the way. He is calling us to that same kind of allegiance. That's why we baptize many people. If you look back there, outside in the courtyard, many times pre-pandemic, we were baptizing folks out there. You can see that blown up hot tub, which was great, which we've never used for parties. I want to make that clear because everyone asked. We don't use the baptism for parties, but we had had this big blow up hot tub and we fill it up, even some cold days too. I remember we did one where it was raining at about 50 degrees and we were still out there dunking people. And we do this and it's just this big celebration because it's following in the way of Jesus, remembering that we are laying down in death and being raised up to new life. We want to see more people experience this public declaration of repentance and allegiance to Jesus. If you're interested in baptism, come talk to us because this is a central step in our life as the church. This is what we 
love to do. We want to see more of it. And as Jesus, he comes out of the waters of the Jordan as he's baptized, something astounding happens in this moment. It says here that as soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water, and at that moment, heaven was opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, this is my son whom I love, and with him I am well pleased. This is where I want to give our focus today, the Father audibly, publicly declaring his love, his affirmation in the identity of his son. And what makes this so astounding for us today, so important, is not just that people are audibly hearing the voice of God. What makes it astounding is that the father makes this declaration. He makes this affirmation before Jesus did one thing in ministry. He affirms the identity and his love for his son before he accomplishes absolutely anything. He had not healed anybody yet. He had never told a parable. No sermons had been preached. No, God was declaring his love for his son before and not after he began to live into his calling. Do you get the big deal that is? This is not a transactional love that God is declaring, that God is revealing. This is not a love that is earned or bought. This is how we come to understand for us the love of God. And what we need to see from this moment in Jesus' story is that as he moves forward into the next three years of his ministry, he is living out of this proclamation. He is living out of this declaration of word. He is living from these words from his Father and not for them. Everything we see in his life flows from the identity and the authority of God that was bestowed upon him as his father declares his love for him. It begs this question. I was thinking about this week as I was looking through this passage because I think what we see in the life of Jesus begins to ask us a a question of how we live in light of the love of God. Here's what I want to ask you to think about. How would you live if you had nothing to earn and nothing to prove? Think about that for a second. How would your life be different if before God you had nothing at all to earn and you had nothing you had to prove? What if you had such a settledness of spirit, such a confidence in who you are and whose you are, If you had a stability, a foundation that could not be shaken as you knew who you were fully and finally, what kind of life would you live that way? That's the kind of life that we see in Jesus. And what we see in this is that he's living in this perfect union with the Father. He's living in light of a love that's been declared over him. Jesus has nothing to earn from his Father. He has nothing to prove to him. And every single moment we see in the life and the ministry of Jesus flows from this reality. Having nothing to earn before the Father. Having nothing to prove before him because love is so final and secure and within him, and he didn't need it. He already had it. 
In John 15, he makes this amazing statement in these last moments before his crucifixion. As he's speaking to his disciples, he's making this declaration over us. The same words spoken to him is now spoken in him to us. It says, as the Father has loved me, I also have loved you. Remain in my love. Abide in my love. This is the gospel. This is the affirmation of love, the declaration of identity and authority that's offered into, unto us. In Christ, those same words are spoken over you and over me. It's an astounding truth. First John 3, 1 says that, see what great love the Father has given us that we should be called what? God's children and we are. It becomes clear in the scriptures that we are adopted into the family of God. We have this identity and authority that has also been declared over us. And because of what Jesus has done, we can hear those same words as well. Hebrews 2 takes this further, talking about the work of Christ for us and saying that for in bringing many sons and daughters to glory, that's us. It was entirely appropriate that God, for whom and through whom all things exist, should make the pioneer of their salvation perfect through sufferings. For the one who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one Father. And this is why Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters. That, to hold up. Jesus here. It's saying here, Jesus is not ashamed to look at you and call you brother or sister. That's astounding, meaning that the, the identity that was spoken over him, the love poured out by the Father in Jesus is now fully and finally poured out on us. And now, just as Jesus heard, this is my son whom I love and whom I'm well pleased, you and I hear, this is my son, this is my daughter whom I love. In whom I am well pleased, that same love where you have nothing to earn and nothing to prove, you have right now. Right now. That's good news. And you know, I know it's one thing to believe this, and it's another thing to experience it even as a reality, to receive it. I think most of us, if I asked you today, if we did a quiz, how many of you would say, does God love you? I bet we would get a good 100% yes in here. I don't think anybody's raising their head and saying no. Almost everyone here, I would imagine, is saying, yes, God, God loves me. But how do we know that? Not, not how can we prove that, but how in the manner do we know these things? I can know, my friends, today that George Washington was the first president of the United States, and I can be right about that. But the knowledge of that does not change in any way the way I live does not change in any way the way I understand myself. Knowing God's love as a theological doctrine and knowing God's love as an experiential reality are two different things, aren't they? One changes us. One stays stuck up in our head. One makes very little impact on how we live our day-to-day -day life. In his book, Surrender to Love, David Benner, he writes, looking back, I find it remarkable how easily I accepted ideas about God as substitutes for direct experience of him. It took me a long time to begin to know God through my heart and not simply my head. In my depths, I longed to really know the God towards whom my heart was drawn, but all I seemed to be able to find was beliefs. 
I believe that God was love, and if I thought about it, I could see that that meant he loved me, but I didn't know that love on a deep, persistent, personal basis. God's love was an idea and not a personal experience. Does that feel familiar to anyone? Perhaps it's compounded by the fact that our cultural definitions of love are almost entirely feelings-driven, almost entirely distortions of the real thing. Love, by popular definition, is a feeling that we fall in and out of, something that ebbs and flows with the seasons of life and struggles of life. Some of us have been on the receiving end of that kind of love and know how much it can let you down, a love that has left us empty and wanting more, just a shadow of what our heart truly needs, a love that is conditional, that's based upon how we perform and not who we are, a love that came and went with emotions and feelings. And what we often do is take those smaller forms of love, those incomplete forms of love, and we project that kind of love onto God as if that's the kind of love that we receive from him. Part of the problem as well is that in the English language, we only have one word for love. So I can say, I love my wife and I love pizza. And it's the same word, but those two things hopefully mean something very different, right? But in the Greek, which is the New Testament language we see here, there's actually four words for love. I don't know if you knew this or not. Four different words. The first one here is phileo. It's where we get the word Philadelphia, meaning friendship or platonic love. This is a love that we share together among friends. It's a love that we hopefully experience together. Secondly, there's this word storge, which is familial love. It's loving people like family. This is encouraged a lot in the New Testament to love one another as brothers and sisters in Christ with this kind of love. Third, there's eros, which is romantic love. And this is probably the closest to our modern conceptions of it because it's focused more on romantic relationships. But the fourth word for love is the one that is used to describe God and the love that we together are called to. This word that we have for love here is agape love, which means unconditional love. This is the love that remains when friendships fail. This is the love that stays with us even when families shatter. This is a love that when romance fades, still remains. Agape love does not go away. It does not fade or falter. This is the love that is described of God. Ken Boa says that agape love is the steady intention of the will to another's highest good. Beyond what we feel at any given moment, it is a steadfast love that continues forward in a commitment to give itself away, to lay itself down, to seek the utmost and absolute good. It has a commitment at any cost to give itself away. Agape love is by nature then sacrificial. And in saying this, we understand that at the cost of ourselves, Agape love will seek your good. That is agape. And in 1 John 4, 16, it says, God is what? God is agape. God is not a feeling. God is agape love. Not that God simply has love or feels love, but that love is the essence of who God is in his being. 
Every attribute of his character, every expression of his will, every emotion that we see him pour out in the scriptures flows out of love, meaning that his justice is love, his faithfulness is love, his anger is love, his wisdom is love, his holiness is love. God does not simply have love or feel love. My friends, God is love, agape love, steadfast love, meaning that God, even as we speak, is eternally steadfastly, stubbornly seeking your highest good. That is what his love means for you. He does not shift like the shadows. He does not falter when feelings fade. God is love with you and for you. And the best of the loves that we hope to attain in this life, the way we want to love one another, whether that be in marriages or friendships or in a church family, is to seek out this agape love that does not fail and falter, the love that we have in God. It's why 1 John says, we love, why? Because he first agaped us. So we offer that same love. God is love with you and for you. What we are seeking together in following Jesus, first and foremost, is the transformation of our identity that comes from receiving and being settled in this love, living from this love that is spoken over us. And as we begin this new year and we, we look forward to ideas about how we might change and grow, and I hope you do, I, I have lots of things that I want to grow in this year. I have things I've definitely written down. I'm seeking out myself, longing to change. But I do know that what we find in the scriptures is that it's not our great and powerful effort that brings these changes in the end. It is in receiving love that change is even possible. It's in receiving and being settled in the love of God that I can have the identity to change into the kind of person that God is calling me to be, to fully and finally hear in our hearts and not just our heads, this is my son, this is my daughter, but my love in whom I am well pleased. That's why I wanted to begin this year, our year together, your year together with us by rooting our identity in this, by taking a moment to slow down and to receive that. So as Hannah comes here now, I want to take these few moments here and just in stillness, seek this out, pray for this in the messiness of where we are right now in our struggles, in our life, to pray for that, to receive that. The question is not whether God is pouring out love upon you. The question is whether we have the courage to continually open ourselves up to receive it. And so let's take a few moments here and just be still. And what I would love for you to do here as we reflect together is just ask God to make that love known to you in a way you haven't before. A way that settles your spirit and gives you confidence that you have nothing to earn and nothing to prove before him. And as a prayer, I want to read these words of author Brennan Manning. Questions for us to guide us into prayer and communion together. 
He writes, do you believe that the God of Jesus loves you beyond worthiness or unworthiness? Beyond fidelity and infidelity? That he loves you in the morning sun and in the evening rain? That he loves you when your intellect denies it? Your emotions refuse it? Your whole being rejects it? Do you believe that God loves you without condition or reservation and loves you this moment as you are and not as you should be? God, thank you that we can receive a love today that is perfect, that drives out fear, a love that is for us here as we are, that you are not waiting on that future version of us to pour out that love. And just like in Jesus, where you spoke the affirmation of love and identity over him before he even accomplished anything, we have that same love spoken over us. We have that same confidence in knowing that you are seeking our utmost good in all things. You are continuously, persistently, consistently loving us. So God, may we receive that love today. And while it may not be a magical moment where everything clicks, maybe today's that first step forward in taking our lives to the foot of the cross where we saw love in its fullness. Make yourself known to us, not only today, but as we live our lives throughout the week as your church where we are.